Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for. I'm Candace Slim, and you're listening to ICYMI. In case you missed it, Slate's podcast about internet culture. And for everyone who was sad about Charles Melton not getting a SAG nomination, let me tell you, I see you, I stand with you, and I am one of you because I am Charles Melton Hive. I was there at Riverdale and I do not feel fear, but instead motivation to continue the campaign for Charles to get an Oscar nomination for his role in May, December. And so I will be registering the Club Melton handle and we will be sending out t-shirts to members as soon as possible. Now, before we jump into today's episode, I want to give a quick warning that this episode does include discussion of murder and sexual assault. So today we are talking about someone who has kind of been the Internet's main character for several weeks. I am, of course, talking about Gypsy Rose Blanchard. On December 28th, 2023, Gypsy Rose Blanchard was released from prison after serving eight years for the brutal murder of her mother, Dee Dee. And when Gypsy Rose is released, the Internet loves her. They make memes. They crown her mother. They follow her on TikTok and Instagram. They write very supportive comments and they talk about her like she is America's sweetheart. But when I think about Gypsy Rose's internet presence, I can't help but think about this episode we did in October where we talked about John Romano, a TikTok content creator who was also a former school shooter. When Romano was 16, He walked into his high school with a shotgun in an attempt, he says, to commit law enforcement assisted suicide. No one was killed, but a teacher was shot and injured, and Romano served 17 years in prison before being released in 2020. Since then, Romano has been posting TikToks that range from the effects of seasonal affective disorder to gun control because he's spoken several times about how sorry he is for what he did and how he is actively trying to prevent the next school shooting. And despite his earnest pleas for forgiveness, a lot of TikTok commenters were unhappy about his content and very unwilling to let Romano be a citizen on TikTok to the point where he had to private his account and turn off his comments for a time. So I think about Romano and I can't help but ask, why is Gypsy Rose allowed to become an influencer with open arms, but Romano is not? What makes the internet stan her but act almost punitive in the way they treat Romano and want to run him off TikTok? And does supporting Gypsy Rose mean letting her off for murder? Or is the internet just giving her a second chance at normalcy? I have a lot of questions. So on today's show, I'm talking to Vox Culture reporter Asia Romano, who wrote about Gypsy Rose back in 2017 and has a lot of thoughts about her social media presence since. We'll get into all of that with Asia after a short break. Hey there. 
If you love our podcast, then maybe you should consider subscribing to Slate Plus. With Slate Plus, there are no ads on any Slate podcasts. And Slate Plus helps keep this podcast going because this show would not be possible without your support. With Slate Plus, you'll get bonus segments and episodes for shows like Dear Prudence, Amicus, and Culture Gab Fest. You'll also never hit a paywall on the Slate website, meaning you get access to every article and every advice column. Just visit slate.com slash ICYMI plus to sign up. That's slate.com slash ICYMI plus. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well... It was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. And we're back. Joining me on today's show is Vox culture reporter Asia Romano. Hello, Asia. Hi. Nice to be here. So great to have you. Now, this is your first time on ICYMI, and so there is a question I must ask you, which is, what is your first internet memory? Oh, gosh, my first internet memory. Um, I probably came to the internet earlier than most people because I am a, a kid of the 90s and I went to governor's school in Tennessee, which is this uh, basically like summer school for for high school kids. And while I was there, we were using like very early, like primitive internet. We were using uh, like Telnet and so forth. Um, And so I I think my very first memory of the internet is just associated with that, the freedom that came from being in this, this program for gifted high school students, because I'd never had anything like that happen to me before. So it was all part of this, this wondrous new journey that I was on that had innately nothing to do with the internet, but also everything to do with the internet. Yeah, I loved that. And I think you are a perfect person to talk about the Internet and what the Internet can do to some people if they have the access, because (laughs) we are here today, thanks to the date December 28th, 2023. And that is the date that one Gypsy Rose Blanchard was released from prison. After eight years behind bars and before that, a life confined to a wheelchair, Gypsy Rose Blanchard will soon walk free. Now 32 years old, she's set to be released early from Chillicothe Correctional Facility in Missouri tomorrow, where she served a shortened sentence for the second-degree murder of her mother, Dee Dee. Gypsy Rose was sentenced to 10 years back in 2016 after pleading guilty to second-degree murder, but in September, she was granted parole and served 85% of her sentence before being released. Now, back in 2017, a Gypsy Rose documentary was released, and you, Asia wrote a piece for Vox about it called HBO's Mommy Dead and Dearest is a perfect storm of true crime, pageantry, and Southern Gothic tropes. 
And it's a great piece summarizing what goes down in the documentary, but also a great analysis of what exactly we are supposed to take away from it. So I want to start at the beginning. How would you describe the story of Gypsy Rose Blanchard to someone who has not seen the documentary, heard about her, gone through the Wikipedia page? I would describe it as kind of a bizarre, garish, almost larger than life battle of wills between a mother and daughter where you have this mother that is controlling and narcissistic and has projected all of her need for attention onto her daughter via what we now know of a disorder called Munchausen by proxy. Most of the public actually learned about this disorder through this case. And Munchausen syndrome is a syndrome whereby someone pretends to be sick for attention. Munchausen's by proxy is where someone forces someone else in their life to be sick so that they can then have attention for caring for that person. And in this case, the person that the mother, Dee Dee Blanchard, was practicing her abuse on was her daughter, Gypsy Rose Blanchard. And Dee Dee Blanchard would force her to use a wheelchair. She shaved her head to make it look like she had been having chemotherapy. She forced her to use a feeding tube. She convinced multiple doctors to give Gypsy multiple unnecessary surgeries, mm-hmm. um, including really horrible things like at one point she had her, um, I think, saliva glands removed. Just really bizarre awful stuff. And she also created this entire illusion and this narrative around Gypsy that was sort of smoke and mirrors. You know, she was perpetually young. She's perpetually ill. Uh, She was sick with everything. She had chronic illness. She was on death's door. They were low-key celebrities, (laughs) you know, in the the terminal illness community, I guess you could say. You know, they received lots of attention. They received lots of gifts. You know, they got to go on free trips. They received free housing, for example, from the Ronald McDonald House. This was both a disorder and also a scam. So Gypsy wasn't really able to escape. She was never allowed to to be on her own. She was never allowed to talk to her doctors on her own. And she was also constantly encouraged uh, and pressured to be performatively much younger than she actually was. Mm -hmm. So by the time things really kick off here, she was in her early 20s, was still essentially performing the role of being a young teenager. But she also was very, very eager to be on the internet where she met a guy named Nicholas Godijan. Nicholas Godijan was kind of vulnerable in his own way. He had a long history of mental illness. He was on the autism spectrum. He may have had dissociative identity disorder. The experts sort of argued over this in court. And he was very, very heavily into dark, dark fantasies and and dark fantasy role-playing, that type of stuff. He So she kind of found him... And it was sort of this perfect storm of personalities coming together to fuel what happened next, if that makes sense. Yeah. And can you maybe tell us what happened in 2015 that led to Gypsy Rose's arrest? Dee Dee and Gypsy had a joint Facebook account. And in June 2015, out of nowhere, somebody made a post to their joint account that just said, that bitch is dead. And the post is actually still up. And if you look at it, it's flooded with people, with their friends and neighbors just being so shocked and thinking this has to be a hoax because their reputation in their community was just that they were a deeply united, loving mother and daughter pair. Dee Dee was seen as a saint. Gypsy was seen as just this pure, sweet child. And so nobody really knew what to make of this post. But when 
the the police arrived, they found that Gypsy was nowhere to be found. But her mother, Dee Dee, had been brutally murdered. So they didn't know at first where, if Gypsy had been kidnapped or what was happening. But they quickly learned from looking at her internet history that it was likely that she and Nicholas Scotajohn had participated in this together. And they were later located a few states away. And they were captured and they both confessed to to having murdered her together. And Gypsy wound up pleading guilty to second-degree murder, which is partly why she got such a reduced sentence, but also because of the extraordinary circumstances of this case and the horrific abuse that she'd suffered for years. She had felt like this was her only way out. I mean, you can argue that she manipulated Nicholas Godijan into this. It was something that they very much romanticized, this fantasy of him sort of being her knight in shining armor and coming to her rescue and helping her escape this torture chamber where she had been kept her whole life. As brutal and as dark as it all is, like it's also on a level, you can't help but feel sorry for both of them. And he actually received, because he was the one who carried out the murder, he received a life sentence without the possibility of parole, which she can argue about whether that's a fair sentence for him to receive such a harsh sentence when she got off so lightly. Because obviously, if not for her, he would probably never have done this. He would have no reason to kill T.D. Blanchard otherwise, if not for her. And so she, like you said, served about 80% of her sentence. She got out in December. And her fan base, (laughs) obviously, because of the coverage, the national attention that this case got... Uh, people were highly anticipating her release. And so there were a lot of people who were just very celebratory in the day that she was finally released. And she emerged from prison into the waiting arms of the press, basically, and, and has been on this wide ranging and widely publicized press tour ever since. You know, going back to 2016, Gypsy, she is sentenced to 10 years in prison. And during her time in prison, The media and Hollywood cannot get enough of her story. They are creating shows, documentaries, just writing about her constantly. And I want to kind of point to the 2017 Vox piece you wrote. That is about the documentary HBO put out. It's called Mommy, Dead, and Dearest. I first off want to ask, what did you think about the documentary? Was it like fair? Was it biased? Did it change the way you thought about Gypsy and her story? I don't think it changed the way I thought about the story, but I think it, it having all the context that it added was really useful. Um, it gave me a lot of, uh, quite a bit of context about her family. Um, and what we now know, too, is that there was likely a, a long history of abuse within her family. There's a lot of generational trauma visited, not just upon her, but also on Dee Dee. Um, her grandfather has been accused of sexually abusing them uh, both, and his response is not is actually horrifying. So it's not something that would would lead you to believe that those accusations are empty. To that extent, that seemed to be a little bit layered in this documentary. Like there were hints that the whole family was dysfunctional. Um, And I think you can see that in a number of ways. And having that come through, I think was really helpful in terms of thinking about how, you know, where these problems originated and how this all visited upon Gypsy herself, right? The documentary was maybe a little more objective in terms of Gypsy herself, in terms of not necessarily letting her off for her role in the murder, which I think a lot of people now want to only see her as a victim 
and only see her as someone who was horrifically manipulated by her mother, which is also obviously very true, and we should never lose sight of that. But she, in turn, also manipulated Nicholas Godijan. When we talk about her, we have to be really kind of reflective. And I, I do think that the documentary, in my memory at least, it was a pretty objective look at Gypsy herself. Yeah. And this documentary definitely allows her to kind of enter the public consciousness with at least a little bit more context. However, in 2019, Hulu, they come out with a show called The Act. It stars Joey King as Gypsy Rose. Patricia Arquette plays her mom. Patricia wins the Emmy for it. And I think back then, we were kind of still very slightly bringing up this conversation about the ethics of fictionalized or dramatized true crime. Because even though the show was critically acclaimed, it won Emmys, you know, Gypsy Rose herself was not that happy about it. And I kind of want to talk about this moment in time when Gypsy Rose, she is in prison, but her story is kind of everywhere. Do you have any theories as to why the media in Hollywood was obsessed with Gypsy Rose herself? Like, was it warranted? Was it a little off-putting? How did you feel about it at the time? I I think it's still a little off-putting, honestly. You know, and I've covered a lot of these cases. You know, I've written about, for example, the backlash to the Jeffrey Dahmer miniseries. I just wrote about May, December, and the backlash that Vili Falau had towards that story being told sort of without his participation in any way. And I feel like this is a common trope that you hear among true crime in the true crime community, that there's a need to not only be respectful of the victims when you're telling these stories, but to kind of take their their viewpoints into consideration and as much as you can work that into your narrative, which is tricky. We sort of hold true crime to a different standard, perhaps, than we hold other types of fictional retellings of real life events. So there's that on a basic level. Also, in this case, Gypsy was convicted of murder. You know, she, right. she did have an active role in not only being the victim, but also perpetrating the crime. So when we talk about how should we incorporate her version of the narrative into the story, at some point we have to fundamentally be aware that that narrative to some degree is always going to be self-serving because she maybe isn't even capable of being objective about her life or her own mother's. And I think that's another aspect to consider. Often victims and their families or survivors, they're incapable of being as objective as the subject deserves. Exactly. And, you know, I want to kind of get into the 2020s at this point, because this is kind of where there's a bit of a lull, let's say, in the Gypsy Rose timeline. You know, she gets engaged to a guy named Ken. Uh, She gets married to her current husband, Ryan. And I don't think people were as interested in her story around this point. One, probably because there was this like entire new flood of true crime stories, podcasts, movies to obsess over. But also, I don't think she exactly had a voice yet, meaning I don't know if the public was ready to kind of hear from her just yet, except for to hear versions of her, i.e. through the act. And so I don't think it was clear whether she'd get out early or if she'd complete her 10 years. But let's fast forward to September 2023 when it is announced that Gypsy Rose has been granted parole, which means that she is being released about three years early. And this is when the Internet starts to kick up some leaves, because am I right in this? People were, like, excited for Mm -hmm. her. I mean, I found out about this because Popcrave tweeted about it, and I was scrolling through some of the replies today, and if I may, I'm going to read some of them to you. Someone wrote, quote, Gypsy leaving prison now that she's an icon. I'm so happy for her. Slay as she should. She didn't deserve to be sentenced, in my opinion. Fight me. 
And I will be honest, I read these and I was like, whoa, I just did not realize that there were so many Gypsy Rose supporters, let alone online. And so I want to ask you, how did you feel about the Internet's reaction to her when she was granted parole? I was reading the tweets over the holiday and I almost messaged my editor, even though it was the holiday and we were all off, to be like, these tweets are awesome because they were so funny. They were <laughs> they were just really delightful. It was just a really delightful kind of public outpouring. And we don't really get that kind of, especially on Twitter, which is, this was the rare, the rare occasion that I felt like Twitter actually justified its its use as a platform because people were just so happy and, and the, and everyone, it was just so funny and kind of delightful to watch. I mean, a public celebration like that, that something that unites us is always worth noting. And there was just a lot of really positive energy coming out of the whole trend and people just talking about her and because as things go it was pretty harmless it's this abuse victim who's getting out of prison and she seems to be mostly okay which is a cause for celebration but at the same time she's a convicted murderess let's not get ahead of ourselves <laughs> so yeah i want to talk about that a little bit because hey i agree with you did i giggle giggle smash the like button on some of these tweets Sure thing. I did have to kind of take a step back and ask myself if I maybe should feel a little guiltier about the joy that's kind of emanating from Twitter because of this. Because like you said, she did serve time for her involvement in the murder of her mother. And so should we be celebrating her so openly online? It's really tough because again like i said i still feel really sorry for nicholas go john he's serving life in prison without parole like he's right. never getting out and his life is over because of this where is that level of empathy where is that level of public support for him is there that level that same level of public support are we to some extent like seeing her as someone who girl bossed her way out of abuse like there's this idea of her as a survivor but also something about her persona and the way we've come to identify her or see her is as this sort of sassy poster child for true crime celebrity almost yeah like i don't think people are really taking into account the actual like many layers of the psychological trauma she experienced and the trauma she's still working through she absolutely was horrifically abused and most people can't even fathom the level of abuse that she had to go to i mean being forced to use a feeding tube being forced to, to have unnecessary surgeries on your body like it's so awful but i think in this case, we're comp we're kind of overcompensating by taking her immediately from traumatized abuse victim to girl power, like influencer, like and with not a lot of real stop gaps in between. And of course, we don't know what her progress in prison was like. Prison isn't super well known for its rehabilitative therapy, but in this case, obviously, she had so much more freedom in prison than she had being at home. And, and it's obvious the the road to recovery that she's been on. And it's obvious that she has done a lot of work to become healthy and normal. And it's hard not to just be very, like, simply happy for her. This specific story is so complicated. Um, so it's hard not to feel like we should be approaching with caution. Yeah, this is a very complicated situation. So let's take a short break. But when we come back, Asia and I will break down the highs and lows of the Gypsy Rose press tour. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. 
Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So, first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back. And we're back. So I want to go to December 28th when Gypsy Rose is released from prison in the early morning. Her husband, Ryan, picks her up, takes her to a house where her family and friends are waiting to greet her. And so begins the Gypsy Rose press tour, Asia. Do you have any moments that you would like to highlight between her release and like yesterday, perhaps? Yeah, I think her appearance on The View is a big one. Let's see what I can do with it. I'm going to try to create some change and, you know, be a voice for the voiceless. You know, um, if there is someone out there watching right now, please listen to me. Heed my words that you are not alone in in, in this, you know, situation. There are other ways out. Um, I did did it the wrong way. Um, So, you know. Don't say that. I I did. I, no I, choice, did, I did really. something wrong and I, I paid my dues for it. Oh, you mean it. that part? Yes, the part of it, oh, yeah. you know, that part of it. 
it takes Joy a moment to remember that Gypsy murdered somebody. Like, and she's like, oh, well, apart from that, like, and it's like, apart from that, like, what other thing was there apart from that? Like, that's why we're here. <laughs> For me, it is the way that Gypsy Rose then has to say to Joy Behar, murder is wrong. She has to say that to her to, like, remind her. Let me back up and say that the reason why... Gypsy Rose Blanchard has been on probably every outlet, screen, refrigerator you've seen this January mm-hmm. is because she's promoting a lifetime docuseries and an ebook. But in your recent Vox piece, you brought up this very interesting comparison between Gypsy Rose and Britney Spears in the way that they've kind of like created this narrative arc as victims who were able to use books and documentaries to emerge as survivors. But despite all of that, I do wonder, should we be like at all cautious about Gypsy Rose and her motives on this press tour? It's tough, right? Because on the one hand, you know, she's got to make some money. She's got to build a life for herself. But on the other hand, there's some trepidation around the choices that she's making now, right? Because, you know, if you depend too heavily on, you know, your 15 minutes of fame, then you have to figure out who you are when that 15 minutes of fame is over. Part of the the unease around this is that we're seeing her do all these these shows, etc., right? But like we like you said earlier, we haven't really seen much of her since she was in prison. We can trust just from the way that she's acting now and the way she's presenting herself that she's done a lot of work and she's gone through a lot of recovery. But in terms of all of that trauma that she's had to deal with, like, we still don't know that she knows who she is. And it's something of a warped Cinderella story. And people do love a Cinderella story, right? And I think maybe, and this is also why I drew the comparison to Britney Spears. You know, people are, um, they're obsessed with her story and they're obsessed with her narrative, but they're also, they need to keep eyes on her to see that she continues to validate that narrative, right? You know, to see Mm -hmm. how she continues to grow and evolve, Um, because people are basically rooting for her at this point. You know, they're both grown women who are coming into their own without really knowing who they are. And they've had to Mm -hmm. kind of figure out their identities, their, like, who they really are as adults, like, under the scrutiny of the public. And with Gypsy, because there's so much psychological trauma there, we as the public have no way of knowing how much she has or hasn't dealt with that and how much support she has or doesn't have to really help her deal in the long term with everything that she's been through now that she's out in the real world. These press tours, the documentaries, none of that is reality either, <laughs> you know? Like, if you think about her life, like, she still has yet to enter the real world. The The question of who she's going to be at that point isn't something that the cameras can answer. It isn't something that any of the public can answer. And it's something that is deeply personal. And I'm not sure that it's something that we want to be there to watch, you know, because it's something she's going to have to figure out for herself on her own. And the longer we keep the cameras on her, the, you know, it feels like the longer we delay that process and maybe the more we set her up to fail when, when it finally comes to an end. There is something so interesting about watching Gypsy Rose Blanchard, who I think I can admit is like charming. There is something about the way she talks and really gravitates people to her that is absolutely working in her favor. But what I really want to talk about is Gypsy Rose and girlhood, because Gypsy Rose was sentenced when she was 24. She was released in her 30s. And so there's a lot of stuff she missed, for example, just like social media. She probably didn't have an Instagram in prison, but... 
I also think about the little things, such as her mother forced her to shave her head. And now when we see her, she is a full head of hair. That is a small moment of reclamation. On top of that, this idea that, like, if it is true that her mother has been abusing her since she was as early as three months old, this is the freest she's ever been at the age of early 30s. And that is, like, a very interesting time to enter womanhood, let alone Mm -hmm. reclaiming girlhood. And so I wanted to ask you, do you think there is something here about the way that Gypsy Rose is reclaiming her girlhood, especially in the year of Barbie and trad wives and girl dinners, you know, like finding traction online? Yeah, I definitely think that's a bit part of it. I think because we're seeing her experience all of this stuff for the first time is still sort of new and novel when she talks about it. And I think that she's aware of that. And I think she plays up that in a way that's very smart. Um, but also I think it's very natural, you know, and that tweet where the, the person was like, I want to have a, a joint. I want to share a joint with Gypsy Rose. Like it reminded me of that scene in May, December um, where Charles Melton's character uh, is watching his son smoke a joint for the first time. And he's never done it. And his son is like, are you serious? You know? And he has that moment of really, of realizing what he lost because he was, because he was in this coercive relationship where he, he didn't basically didn't have a childhood because adulthood was forced on him because of what happened to him. And you can see this, this painful realization on his face. And he almost has a breakdown over this act of, you know, having a joint for the first time. And I think some of that is being distilled into our projection of gypsy, you know, Mm. where we're watching her go through these things that we know she's never really had much chance to experience before. And I think when it comes to all of the tropes of femininity, we're sort of amplifying and magnifying them uh, in the way that we react to her. You know, people are always talking about how gorgeous she is now. And, it's a, a manifestation of this cultural need we have to see her kind of ascend, you know, and become the most embodied personification of femininity that you can have in in a culture where we're also reckoning with what has been done to her, right? Like, because I think for for a bunch of reasons right now, um, you have the Barbie movie, but you also have like, we're in the era of Ozempic, right? We're in the era right. of fascist body policing, you know, we're in the era of regressive gender policing and regressive gender politics overall. Like we're in, like you said, the trad wives, like we're in this era where femininity needs to be as hardcore feminine as it can be in order to be successful. And I think she represents that to a lot of people because she is sort of nascent because she's just sort of emerged from this this long cocoon of, I don't know, not knowing who she is. She has this chance to kind of completely remold her identity in front of us. And I think there's a lot of public pressure and cultural pressure on her to make that identity the most emblematic of this moment that we're in, you know, to make it as feminine, as girly, as successfully woman-ish, you know, <laughs> as it can be. So after Gypsy Rose was released from prison, you wrote this great piece for Vox called Gypsy Rose Blanchard, whose bizarre tale of abuse ended in her mother's murder, is the latest free woman at the eye of a media hurricane. And something you kind of brought up pretty early is the way that we treat and talk about prisoners who have been released. Just what is their life post that? I 
can't help but ask this question, which is, why is Gypsy Rose being allowed to return to society and specifically social media with such open arms when a lot of people who exit the carceral system aren't? And like, what makes the Internet stand Gypsy Rose but almost act punitive in the way they treat anyone else who is like trying to live a normal life and embed in society via social media? It's so complicated. I think because we only have one side of the narrative, I think that's a huge part of it. And that side seems to so blatantly support Gypsy and her identity as a victim. I don't want to throw around the word victim. If you overuse that word, it loses its meaning. And I think most people would prefer, like, I'm sure she would prefer to be thought of as a survivor, like you said. Like, she's kind of pivoted the narrative. But I think the initial shock people feel when they learn about the story and they learn how horrific uh, the abuse of her was, I think... Their, their immediate reaction is just overwhelmingly one of sympathy, you know, which is absolutely understandable. And there, so far, there's been nothing to shift that. If her mother was here, and if we could hear what her mother has to say, undoubtedly, there would immediately be people who would be like, okay, no, I'm, I'm team mother, I'm team DD. Right. And like, <laughs> you know, they would make sort of countering the dominant current narrative, they would make countering that their mission, right? I think partly that's just human nature. And I think partly that's because people who go through the prison system, like we don't really have the means set up for them to reintegrate into society on their own terms. The way that Gypsy has been able to, to negotiate the terms of her reintegration Mm -hmm. because again, because I think the narrative, the, the media narrative that has been spun about her while she is in prison, the media narrative has largely upheld this view of her as a victim, right? There's been nothing to really um, counteract that or complicate that in any way. So she's just sort of, she exited prison into this, the waiting embrace of this narrative where she is a Cinderella story. But if you look at somebody like Amanda Knox, like people still think that she did it, you know, people still think that even though she was exonerated, you know, even though she was by all accounts wrongfully convicted, there isn't the same level of sympathy for her. And part of the reason for that is that the the competing narratives about what happened to her were always there. Like they were always there and present throughout the the entire history of her incarceration. So when she, like when Amanda Knox was released, it's taken the, the public some time to really come around to her and the idea of her as a survivor of injustice when she was first released, there were a lot of people who were very, very cynical about her, you know, and it kind of waiting for, I don't know, waiting for her to reveal what, what her true personality was and like who she really was. Right. Um, and I think that that's sort of typical of the way that a lot of people are greeted when they, when they exit the prison system, because even if you were wrongfully convicted, I think on the public, sometimes there tends to be this, this idea that, Oh, you must've done something to be in there. Or, or you wouldn't be in this situation, even if it was wrongful conviction. You know, we know those can sometimes be very bizarre and and sometimes have absolutely nothing to do with the the person who winds up wrongfully convicted. But the the public will often feel that they did something to deserve it, and they that there's this unease around letting them back into society because even if they were wrongfully convicted, you know, you don't know what tricks they learned while they were in prison. You know, they don't you don't know how corrupted they became because they were they went through the system. Um, and, you know, we could be asking those same questions about Gypsy, but I think there's just a zero impetus to do that because the, the overwhelming media narrative around her is 
I don't want to say blinding, but it's it's very much a it's mono voice. I don't know what the word and is. I'm singular. Trying. I think she's yeah. very singular in that way too. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's really unusual for us to have this person who is so kind of influencer ready. <laughs> and again, I think maybe too, that's because she didn't know who she was and who she became in prison was this very, then you know, it's possible that she's been preparing for this for the last five years or whatever. You know, as soon as she started getting offers from Lifetime, maybe she, she spent some time in prison every day practicing her public speaking. You know, maybe she has been working on this. Like maybe she's been really prepping for this to be her new life. And if she has, then well done. She's doing great, you know? And so maybe that's part of why we're seeing her be so successful right off the runway, you know? Okay, that's the show. I want to thank Asia Romano for joining me on today's episode. You can find more of Asia's work on Vox, where she writes about Travis Kelsey, horror movies like Thanksgiving and Five Nights at Freddy's, and the Long Island serial killer. We'll be back in your feed on Wednesday, so definitely subscribe. That way, you never miss an episode. Leave us a rating and a review on Apple or Spotify, and tell your friends about us. You can follow us on Twitter at ICYMI underscore pod, and you can always drop us a note at ICYMI at slate.com. ICYMI is produced by Sierra Spragley Ricks, Rachel Hampton, and me, Candace Lim. Daisy Rosario is our senior supervising producer, and Alicia Montgomery is Slate's vice president of audio. See you online or on The View. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So, first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. And it would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails, there ain't no going back.